Hey, it's Callie, and this is the 44th episode of the Hippie Haven podcast, coming at you from the marina in San Francisco. So if you hear the occasional uh, wind or foghorn or seagull or cars driving by way too darn fast in a parking lot, that is why. If you're new here, I release an episode every Wednesday related to living an ethical and eco-friendly lifestyle. I want to meet you where you're at, so we cover all sorts of different topics, like how to make less trash, composting, urban beekeeping, secondhand shopping, and so much more. My goal is to empower you to take action, both in your day-to-day routine and on a larger scale of community activism, because I believe that together we will make a difference. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe so that you automatically get each new episode the day it comes out. Today's guest is Nikki Schotter, a permaculture expert who grows $700 worth of food in her 100-square-foot yard in Washington, D.C. She's sharing all her best tips for backyard gardening and how you can supplement your family's diet with healthy, organic, homegrown foods. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode on my website, hippiehavenpodcast.com forward slash 044. This episode is made possible by Bestowed Essentials, the zero-waste store that I founded and now run with the help of four amazing employees. It's available online at bestowedessentials.com, at our retail store in Rapid City, South Dakota, and now at the Wednesday Farmer's Market in downtown Salem, Oregon. Yes, that's right. We are expanding thanks to your support, and we hope to have an official retail store in Salem by early 2021. Help us spread the zero-waste movement around the country by choosing Bestowed Essentials for your sustainable lifestyle needs and save 10% with the code HIPPIEHAVEN10. That's H-I-P-P-I-E-H-A-V-E-N with the number 10. As always, thank you for supporting the work I do and helping me keep this mic on. Before we get into the interview, I want to take a few minutes and let you know about some exciting events I'm doing this summer, 2019, where I hope to meet some of you. On July 21st, I'm teaching a no-sew t-shirt tote bag workshop at The Source Zero in San Jose, California. On July 24th, I'm doing a zero-waste lifestyle Q&A at The Zero Shop in Capitola, California. August 3rd, I'll be speaking about how to reduce your trash and your impact on the planet at the Madison Vegan Fest in Madison, Wisconsin. Then on August 15th, I'm participating in a discussion on how to make a difference in your community at The Refill Shop in Ventura, California. August 17th, a DIY bath salt workshop at Bring Your Own in Long Beach, California. August 21st, another no-sew t-shirt tote bag workshop at Sonora Refillery. Then on August 15th, I'm participating in a discussion on how to make a difference in your community at the refill shop in Ventura, California. August 17th, a DIY bath salt workshop at Bring Your Own in Long Beach, California. August 21st, another no-sew t-shirt tote bag workshop at Sonora Refillery in Oceanside, California. On August 24th, a DIY dishwasher powder workshop at Modern Maker Market in Escondido, California. August 28th, DIY tooth powder workshop at Earthwell Refill in San Diego. And finally, on September 1st, I'll be teaching a DIY face mask workshop at En Concordia in San Diego, California. Almost all of these events are free to participate. Be sure to visit the event page on bestowedessentials.com or on our Facebook page to get full details for each event. If you're in any of those areas, I really hope to see you there. Now for today's episode. So what is permaculture? Permaculture was a word first coined by the late Bill Mollison, who's considered the founder of permaculture, and his student David Holmgren. And it first came to mean an agricultural system that was permanent. But it's since then come to mean so much more. And ask any permaculture designer the same question, you would likely come up with 
as many different answers as there are designers. And, and all pointing towards some sort of a regenerative economy, actually. Not just gardening, but a whole economy, a whole ecosystem of communities. But here's my definition. Permaculture is a regenerative design system based on observation that integrates your family, your food, your home, the animals and plants that surround you, even the local community, into a holistic ecology. So I know that's a mouthful, but it's not just for, for growing vegetables abundantly. And this is one of the results of both permaculture and organic gardening. But permaculture systems look to the whole surrounding neighborhood and long to create a cyclical economy where there is no waste. So we do this on the micro scale and you know, your own zero waste cycles of food and consumption, your compost toilet even, <laughs> to the macro scale, your garden compost, your village market. There are towns that practice permaculture in, in a community-wide setting because they even have their own currency. Um, so it's, it's really a, an all-encompassing concept philosophy, but we apply it in particular to gardening because we believe that this is the highest impact and that's where we can see a lot of change happening in the person and um, yeah so so that's my permaculture definition. And what got you into growing your own food? Thank you for asking that so when I first got married my husband and I were totally consumers of everything fast food think McDonald's Costco um, and when our first daughter was born we wanted to do everything right by her we want to baby wear, breastfeed, etc. But she started developing these rashes on her face and it was eczema. So for eczema, you do the things parents do. You put cream, you follow the doctor's ordinance, put, put hydrocortisone, but these rashes, they just wouldn't go away. So we went to see a gastroenterologist and they put an endoscope down her stomach and, and they said, no, there's nothing wrong with her stomach. There are no, there's no lesions or anything until we found out from an allergist that she did have food allergies. And of course, every time I breastfeed her, that's when it would flare up. So we knew there was this connection to the food I was eating and the food, um, it was sort of poisoning her in a way. So in the end, she was allergic to pork, chicken, eggs, dairy, soy, sesame, milk, wheat, peanuts, and several tree nuts. And this lead, led us to question the food system. You know, maybe there was something wrong with it. Maybe Maybe it was the pesticides. And we figured, okay, we need to go organic now. And we didn't do this all at once, of course, because that was, would just be overwhelming. Um, and 12 years ago, there were not as many organic choices as there are today in the groceries. But we started with the milk, then the eggs, then the dirty dozen, until little by little, our grocery bill was through the roof. And that being said, like that's a very big reason that um, that we grow our own food and that's when we decided okay it's time to try to do this ourselves we want to grow our own produce and now 12 years later she has outgrown most of her allergies there are a few nut allergies that are still there but um, and we supply 25 percent in our tiny townhouse which is one fortieth of an acre we supply 25 percent of our fruits and veggies during the summertime and that season gets longer and a longer and longer season every year. And so there, that's, that's her story. And what are the benefits of, of growing your own food 
versus buying food from the grocery store besides, you know, as you mentioned, being able to save money? Well, number one, it's healthier for you. In the U.S., one of every two men and one of every three women are likely to develop cancer over the course of a lifetime. And pesticides are part of the reason why. And um, this is not, this is a quote, not from me, but from the National Pesticide Association on, online. Right? Um, and so if something has the organic label on it, and it's found in one of the top 10 grocery retailers in the country, it's likely to have been grown, even though it's organic, on a large-scale monoculture operation. And these large-scale organic corporations may not use pesticides, which is great. So they're a good you know, backup, but they often use unsustainable practices such as drawing on natural artesian water supplies until those wells are totally depleted. And their systems of growing are still linear. There's no recycling of nutrients going on. It's very far from being zero waste because they waste water and they waste soil. Plus, they're often sold in plastic bags and shipped halfway around the world, creating more carbon emissions. So that's another, another reason that we, we grow our own food. But back to nutrition. Across the board, because of the aim of commercial agriculture in the U.S. at least, to produce more yield, we have seen significant decreases in actual crop nutrition so that we have to eat eight oranges today to get the same amount of nutrition from one orange in the 1950s. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, and that's just oranges. I mean, I'm sure it's, it affects all the, the common produce that we find in the groceries. And shelf life. Let's talk about shelf life. Studies show that 100% of vitamin C in spinach is lost in refrigeration after a week. Wow. And similarly, yeah, we see more nutrient losses in foods the longer their shelf life is, which is why organic farmers markets are better alternatives to groceries if you can find them, even just from a nutrition standpoint. But the very best choice in order to be healthier, in order to live zero waste, in order to capture carbon in the soil is to grow your own food. So um, Adrian A's Fisher writes in Ecological Landscape Alliance. There's a blog there. And he writes, worldwide, possibly half of human emissions could be sequestered through organic gardening. How time consuming is it to grow your own food? Callie, in the time one would spend using Facebook every day, you can grow enough to raise at least $700 worth of fruit and veggies in a 10 by 10 foot square area. Whoa. Most like, yeah, most likely more, more than that. That's, we feel like that's lowballing it, but all you need is 15 minutes a day. And I'm not the only one who says this. Amy Strauss, another permaculture friend of ours who also does podcasts, was, was where we got this 15 minutes a day and seven minutes. She says to us, seven minutes has to be observation. <laughs> You're just there to enjoy it, to observe. Um, and yeah, most likely we can grow more than $700 worth of fruits and veggies. How much more? That's a great agricultural grant topic. <laughs> but we've proven this through our Grow It Yourself Garden Program, which is what we run, working with families across the streets, the states to grow their own food, baby step by baby step at a time. And we have people registered who only have a balcony um, and who compost on that balcony. So it's definitely doable in smaller spaces. 
Yeah. So how, what are your recommendations for growing food in small spaces? You know, if it's a tiny, you know, 10 foot by 10 foot yard or on an apartment balcony. So in a tiny space, whether, however small that is, even if it's a little pot, you're always trying to mimic the natural space, the outdoor world. So you want to bring in the same sort of ecosystem that the soil on the ground has into your pot. And that's why the bigger the pot, the better, because then you can stick in earthworms there, kind of work in your eggshells and banana peels so they have something to eat inside. And through this system, you'll have more arthropods and nematodes. And this this soil brimming with life, no matter where it is, is what the basis of the life above ground that it will support is. So number one thing um, that I recommend for any food growing situation is first to plan your garden. Even if it is a balcony, be intentional and seek out the resources for these. And we are definitely a go-to resource. We're currently, we currently have a webinar on our site on growing food in small spaces. And if you're interested, Callie will show you where, where, where to go to find that. But um, number two, our goal is zero waste. So if you're in, a par- in an apartment balcony, we don't recommend buying hydroponic setups. While the, this is great to get your enthusiasm started, and if somebody's gifted you with this and you don't know what to do with it, then maybe it's something that you can use to just get going. But really, we can't mimic that same soil life in that hydroponic system as we can um, in in a soil situation. Now, if you do have a hydroponic system, you can do something like attach fish to it, and then you have a cycle, and that's called aquaponics. And then you have the fish pooping and creating the nutrients for your plants, and then um, you have more complete system. You have to deal with water, but but really. Um, for small spaces, start with pots. The bigger the pot, the better. And for more information, check out our webinar on growing food in small spaces. Now, what is companion planting and how does that work? Okay, when we think of plants or any living organism for that matter, we can't think of them in isolation. So just as you, Callie, you can see that zero waste is not an issue that can be dealt with in isolation. But it's a delicately orchestrated concert to bring zero waste about which is why your your guests are so varied from um, minimalists and organizers to canners so in growing plants we can't just put one plant in a pot and expect it to live forever so when we grow plants we are mimicking like i said that biology of the outdoors so so to grow it well we need to do that in concert with other plants in permaculture we call these grouping of plants which is not just companion planting like one plant with another. For instance, we know tomatoes grow well with basil. Why do we know that? There's something in basil that it exudes that just promotes growth in tomatoes. But then we we try to go a little bit beyond that and actually form guilds. So we go tomato, basil, and marigolds because marigolds deter the tomato hornworm, which is an often um, perceived pest of the tomato. It'll eat up your tomatoes, but but they have something in their roots that just the, the hornworms as pests don't like. So that guild does so much more than just two or two pairings of, of plants. 
I'll take um, another guild is the Three Sisters Guild. Are, are you familiar with this guild, Callie? No, I've never heard of it. What is it? Okay, so uh, the Three Sisters Guild is a grouping of plants developed by Native Americans thousands of years ago, and it's three sisters. The three sisters are corn, which is sort of the star of the guild. It's the heaviest feeder. Be- beans and squash. And how it works is that Native Americans found that by growing the corn up, um, it served as a stock to the beans that were growing, that needed some sort of a trellis to grow up it. But at the same time, since it would take a little bit of time for that corn to get established, the fast-growing squash would sort of act as a living mulch and cover the ground, protecting it from unnecessary evaporation and protecting the bean roots as well. And so together, the three assured greater crop success and also had a bigger harvest as opposed to growing each of these corn, beans, and squash in isolation. So each element, each plant in this instance had not just one function, but several. So um, they produced the fruit, the squash, the beans, and the corn. They also shaded the ground. They acted as a stalk or a trellis. They gave um, nitrogen to the soil because that's what beans and legumes do. They're nitrogen enrichers. And this was an intentional design on the part of Native Americans. And that's why design is so important in in growing, whether that be in pots or outdoors. And where do you purchase organic seeds from? Yes, for that particular one, I have a freebie for your listeners as well who sign up on the link. Um, There are all sorts of um, reputable seed stores available. We like to go with uh, Baker's Creek which is rareseeds.com. We like Seed Savers Exchange. We know them personally. Um, and Southern Seed Exposures, we know them personally too. They're just really smaller companies. And, and honestly, they are, they are popping up more and more now, which is great. But um, how do you assure that they're, they're grown organically? Uh, usually a lot of these seeds have heirloom varieties as well have stories behind them and that's one way that you know that it hasn't been sort of contaminated by GMOs um, and yeah so so let's see what other seeds are Fedco seeds is another place that we get our seeds from but I have the complete list on my on my um, I don't want to leave out anybody that I haven't uh, that I don't u- regularly use um, so I, I'll just Leave it up to your listeners to go get that handout. Yeah, and we'll have the link to that in the show notes. How do you get those seeds started? Now, this is a question best answered with a video as opposed to audio. And I think the best way for me to show this is, is I guess, to just, well, is really through video. So if you could sign up for the link, that would give you the video. But um, here, I'm going to do try my best. You grab a, okay, seed sprouting. You grab any tray. I use a 1020 tray, um, and you can definitely build these ones, but uh, we have, you have to use the heavy duty ones so that you don't, they don't collapse after each use. We've had ours for like five years. 1020 trays are the standard growing trays for seeds. And if you don't have that particular tray, just use whatever you have, because that's what permaculture is about. Use what you have. Do what you can with what you have. 
So even, for instance, an old baking dish, you can you can start with that or um, any metal container that you can fill up with soil about two to three inches tall. And the soil can just be, you can get organic soil. We get ours from our compost and we mix in some top, top soil as well with that. And then you take your packet of seeds, right? So these seeds, you don't even need to buy them. In fact, I have a challenge, which I run once a year called Plant Your Pantry. And it challenges you to go grab whatever you have in your pantry and start, start those seeds. So let's say you have mung beans in your pantry or whatever beans or quinoa even. Then you there's a way in which we plant our seeds. And it's um, the grow biointensive way that John Jevons, who is a really good farmer, California um, organic grower, his method is to plant them in sort of a hexagonal honeycomb pattern where you have intensive planting, meaning you've used as much space as you can, as little space as you can, but giving each seed like as much space as it can to grow. So you've maximized their space for growth inside a 10-20 flat. So if you picture those 10-20 flats that you would normally get from Home Depot that are these rectangular containers, one tray like that can hold as many as 180 kale seeds. And that's just, yeah, that's just from intentionally placing it, though. You know, little, so everything is intentional. You don't just kind of broadcast it, which is what I used to do. And if you do that, don't, don't worry. <laughs> it, most people do that. But if you want most germination and to assure that you have more seedlings than you know what to do with, then you have to put them like in one at a time. And if there's tiny, if they're tiny seeds, like a lettuce seeds or herb seeds, then you have to put them like in a dusty kind of way, but very carefully so that they all kind of land in, um, in a wide area and not, not all clumped up in one single place. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Now, once you have your seeds sprouted and you've got your garden going, how do you keep pests out of the garden? Okay, pests. We have an entire webinar dedicated to this. And um, pests really are just an imbalance of a certain population of things, in, of bugs or insects or rodents in your, in your backyard. And so there are a number of ways. First question would be, what pest do you need us to... Um, yeah, give me, a, give me an example of a pest. What pest were you interested in? Um... In, like, oh gosh, I don't know. I don't. I've, I haven't ever had a garden, so I don't really know what pests get in there. But I'm thinking like slugs or I know like my grandma has an actual backyard garden and she gets um, rabbits and deer that come in and, and eat the vegetables. You guys would really love the webinar that we gave on. It wasn't even called pests because the person who gave the webinar was the former vice president of the United States Humane Society. Nancy Lawson. And she did not call these critters pests. In fact, the, the name of our webinar about pests, pests in the garden was called um, Encouraging Natural Allies in the Garden. And so looking at them in that kind of point of view, you know, not looking at them as like, oh, no, they are going, they are the evil ones that I need to but they're, they're part of the ecosystem too. So you want to also try to give them a little bit of your produce, actually. So you have, if you don't want 
them to eat all of it, then you sort of have to make a barrier of, say, you would put a barrier of um, blueberries or blackberries that are thorned, and they would browse those instead and be deterred by the fact that they're thorny, so they wouldn't jump over your blackberry bushes that are surrounding your garden. So that's, yeah, that's, that's one. And the other one would be just the fence. That's the best, the best solution that we've come across. And we have a lot of deer in our area and my dad had that problem. So we bought him Garden Defender. I think that's the name of the product, Garden Defender, and have no affiliation with them. But that's the product that works because the fence is high enough that the, that the deer doesn't want to go over it. And It'll, it only protects like a little bit of your, your garden plot, not the entire garden. If it's a large garden, like eight by 12 or eight foot, I think is the shortest distance. And with those kinds of distances, it's kind of scary for a deer to want to go into a, a fence because there's a possibility of, of it not being able to, to jump out of the fence and be trapped there. Yeah. So yeah, those are the, those are the two things, but that's for deer and rabbits. You would have to, build your fence underneath the ground where they worry where, where they burrow so it's sort of like Alcatraz where you have underneath um, chicken wire or fences that go all the way underground maybe 12 inches underground so that the rabbits don't don't burrow under but yeah rabbits are the cutest so they are and what about insects so insects so it depends on the insects as well there are so many novel ways now coming out on how to deal with insects organically. Um, and not all insects are bad. Like I said, they, they are part of the ecosystem. Some, some people may actually be scared of parasitic wasps, but it's the parasitic wasp in our garden that lays its eggs on the tomato hornworm and the, you know keeps that population low. So like I said, it's, it really is a balance issue of, of population control. You don't want you, you don't want, you can never eliminate all the mosquitoes in your backyard, no matter how hard you try, I think, but you can keep their population really down if you have frogs, if you have um, dragonflies. You don't have a mosquito problem, you have a dragonfly problem. So. Yeah. I've heard that, I've heard with, with like slugs, you don't have a slug problem, you have a duck problem. Yes, and with slugs, there are alternative ways like eggshells, in beer cans I don't know why this always keeps coming up eggshells and beer cans because I've never tried it myself because I haven't had but that problem um, as much but I know my husband uses eggshells because they don't like getting sliced by those shells and then for ants for instance we've had ant problems where they really are um, so many at a time and I've made my own because I didn't want to buy the borax I made my own um, ant pesticide out of I think I think it was borax so I bought like the borax box of powder and I cooked it down and I the recipe is online and I have to find it one day because I should probably do a blog on this (laughs) but that worked really well instead of me buying those ant killer little plastic things that you have to keep on on at first is expensive so I just put a little dollop of my paste that I created on cardboard strips and the ants ate those and then they kind of died off um and i know there are other people like fire ants i once attended a talk on mycopesticides um which 
which my friend Nancy Lawson didn't like, but I, I attended it um, because it was so it was still targeted, right? Targeted. So his his thing was at least you can get the pesticides out of the market using mushrooms. So these mushrooms are saprophytic. They are they they in, infest the bodies of ants and they kind of grow out of the ants and that's how they kill the ants. So he has trained this the speaker. Um, whose name escapes me, Trad Cotter, that's his name. Um, he, he had trained his, his fungi to attack a certain kind of fly. And so the spores of these fungi would just selectively find this fruit fly. And that's what, how he eliminated certain fruit flies. And, and he trained them to also kill fire ants. So there are, like I said, novel ways that are coming out in the market of organic, you know, pesticides. But then a lot of the homegrown solutions work just as well. I wish you could see my face right now because I'm like, that that sounds wild, (laughs) using mushrooms and spores to grow, like target and grow out of insects. That's definitely interesting. Yes, yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Tell me more about the garden that you started at your local elementary school. Okay, so... The garden at the school in Virginia, the Loudoun County Public School Gardens are all built so that there is a courtyard garden in the middle of the school. So they're all built in sort of squares with a little donut hole, a square hole in the middle. And that for the intention that this garden be some sort of an educational space. But for the most part, most schools do not utilize this garden space. It's just a blank lawn for that maybe sometimes kids can go out into and and you know have a time out in the in this blank lawn and, and we saw this space it was just a blank canvas with three t- trees in it and we felt sad because we saw the potential and at this point in time my husband and I were already thinking gardening we're already growing our own food started to delve into permaculture and see the possibilities that were built you know greening the desert permaculture is used to green the desert in the Middle East and here in the States. And we thought, what an opportunity that's wasted when this space was designed for education. And yet gardening is not taught. Most of the education happens in the inside the brick walls, not outdoors. So and I couldn't stop thinking about it. It would keep me up at night. (laughs) I would I would think, how can I do this? How can I who can I get illicit to to elicit help from to create a garden until I had this vision really crystal clear and I had designed it even before I took my permaculture design course. This ended up being what got me the certificate was the plan drawing of this garden. And I'd had this vision really clear in my brain. So see, this is this is the power of visual, visualization. You, you have to honor that crazy idea that sometimes you have because it's not really your idea. It's, it's an idea that belongs to the people you're called to serve. So fast forward, we co-wrote a grant together with a school's lead science teacher who's still really supportive of the garden work. And, and then we had a $1,000 grant from the Whole Kids Foundation, which is an arm of the Whole Foods Foundation. And since then, we've had Jane Goodall grants support us, uh, a grant from the Loudoun County Public Schools itself. and. The money is not an issue. It's more the community. So we really saw, in order to build this garden, we really saw the coming together of communities in, in different spurts. We had our own community of permaculture 
um, eager students who graduated from my permaculture course. We had volunteers in our meetup group who shows, show up and teach the kids about healthy eating now and then. We had Boy Scouts we have had since its inception, two troops of Boy Scouts and one who has become an Eagle, two of which have become Eagle Scouts then since then. And we've built a classroom outside. So there's a big blackboard that's waterproof and waterproof seating. And they use that classroom to teach things, not just gardening, but math and everything. And it's just a wonderful place. So we have garden beds in, in there as well. And just now, yesterday, we just taught the kids. We couldn't, we couldn't help it. It was so cold, like 20 degrees, but we still took them out there because <laughs> they're, just, they're just itching to go outside. And in the garden, they find the worms that die because of the freezing. Um, in our worm bin, they find, but they find worms burrowing alive too. So they see things they've never seen before. The first time they see a ladybug, it's just an m- amazing moment for them. The first time even that Mr. Harbert, the science teacher, led them out. And, and then they look up in the sky in the middle of the day at 2.30 and they say, it's the moon. It's the moon at daytime. And then Mr. Harbert's like, I told you that the moon comes even during the day and they could not believe their eyes. So little things like this um, keep this garden just a wonderful place for education and just an inspiration to my husband and I. So I encourage you to start a garden, to be part of a garden uh, that's in a school because that's how um, you develop your sense of wonder through the eyes of these kids. That is incredible. And I completely agree. I think that all schools should have gardens. I think that kids should be learning these type of topics that are actually really useful for their life. Yes. Yes, indeed. That is so true. Um, your homeowners association tried to prevent you from growing a garden in your own yard. Um, what, what happened there? How did you fight that? So they said in the end, they said that we weren't, um, they weren't disallowing our garden because we could have one in the back, but we couldn't have an edible garden in the front, just a decorative one, just a flower garden. So there's definitely a disconnect there because I wanted also so much to give a presentation to them and <clears throat> about um, sustainable gardening. And there's you know, you, you come up, I'm sure H, some HOAs are worse than ours because in some areas near us, you can't grow anything except the lawn, really, in, in the front. And that's a shame because there are so many ways to make something edible and beautiful and have stack functions. We talked about the guilds having uh, elements in which there's several functions in that guild, and it's the same for any garden. We can't say that a garden... Um, can only be one way and not another because that's just not the nature of how plants grow. All plants, many, most plants have flowers, whether their fruits are edible or not. So it's, um, we still keep our garden in the back and we still stealthily grow our herbs and lettuce and strawberries in the front. And I've seen the HOA, I get a little scared whenever I see them come over the HOA board um, and inspect all the lawns and everything. I get, I get a little scared, but I try to talk them up and, and um, wonder whether they actually realize that the things that they are seeing and that they're allowing are edible plants. And if they do um, see it, and they, I don't think at 
at this point in time, um, I've talked to them enough that I think we've come to a happy mean that I'm growing something and maybe they're just not seeing it for what it is, or maybe they're just dismissing it because they don't want to rewrite their rules, their HOA rules. But um, so far we are able to grow again. We have a fig tree up the front. We have sage herbs. We have calendula, which is a great herbal remedy as well for the skin. We have all sorts of, well, we have lots and lots of strawberries, oregano, echinacea, which I definitely use during the winter time, um, a feijoa tree, which is a fruit tree, grapes. <laughs> so all of these things that would normally, you'd normally think wouldn't be in a front yard are, and thanks to our friend again, Amy Strauss, she helped show us in another webinar how to grow food and um, keep your neighbors happy. So by growing it aesthetically, another resource for edible landscaping is the author of the book, Edible Landscaping, Rosalind Creasy, who believes that there should be more of us growing in our front yards and making these front yards beautiful and edible at the same time. And what tips do you have for somebody who's just interested in starting to grow their own food? What's your final words of wisdom? All right. My final words of wisdom are not my own. <laughs> They're going to be Bill Mollison, the father of permaculture's words and just to encourage anybody who's just who's already buying organic who believes in zero waste and the environment here are his words the greatest change we need to make is from consumption to production even if on a small scale in our own gardens if only 10% of us do this there is enough for everyone Hence the futility of revolutionaries who have no gardens, who depend on the very system they attack, and who produce words and bullets, not food and shelter. Oh, I love that. Yeah, that's a really powerful one. Definitely. So grow your own food. And that's a wrap. I'll be back next week with Rain Wickham, the owner of Lost Property, a clothing library in Australia, to discuss how a clothing library works and how you can start one in your community. If you find value in the Hippie Haven podcast, please share it with someone you know who'd be interested. You can leave a review on iTunes or whichever podcast app you're using, and also consider buying me a virtual cup of coffee to keep me going. Each podcast episode takes around six hours to create, and episodes cost about $50 each out of my own pocket. These costs include file hosting, editing, transcription for people who need or prefer visual content, and my own time of researching, drafting, recording, proofing, and promoting. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash Cali, that's C-A-L-L-E-E, to support the work I'm doing with a $4 cup of coffee. Thank you all from the bottom of my heart for spending this time with me, and I hope you have a great rest of your day.